You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. On May 14, 1937, the body of Rosina Field, 48, was discovered in the back of the basement of a furniture store in Islington, London. A salesman for the company, Stanley Herbert Wilton, said at the coroner's inquest that Mrs. Field had been hidden in a recess at the very back of the cellar behind a large trunk and some miscellaneous old furnishings. The cellar was theoretically a storage space for the business, but they didn't actually use it, and most of the materials had long ago been left there to collect dust. Wilton figured he hadn't been down there in 10 days, and stated that the whole store had been shut up for two days prior to finding the body. The coroner ruled that Mrs. Rosina Field had died of manual strangulation. It sounds like a classic whodunit, a perplexing, enigmatic, locked-room mystery full of twists and turns, red herrings and dead ends. Detective Inspector Bill Salisbury had solved it within the day of his arrival. That's not to his credit exactly. When Bill got on the scene, he quickly realized that the case, which was very briefly called the Islington Cellar Mystery by the press, wasn't much of a mystery at all. Mr. Wilton, the furniture salesman, had gone to the basement on May 14th because he'd received a letter which read, Don't be frightened. There is a dead woman in number 22. You can believe me. It has nothing to do with me, but you know what the police will say. It was signed by one of Wilton's subordinates at the furniture store, Fred Murphy, 53, of Colebrook Row, Islington. Eight years before, Frederick George Murphy had been acquitted for the murder of Catherine Peck. Catherine, too, had been strangled. Ethel May Marshall, who had been living with Murphy, told Salisbury that they had gone out drinking maybe the day before the victim was discovered and that once he was good and drunk, Fred had turned stony-faced and said, I have something serious to tell you. There's a woman's body in the shop. Then he had taken her to the basement and shown it to her. He'd assured her he knew nothing about it and gave her the note to pass to Mr. Wilton. Frances Keene told the detective that she'd been walking by herself when, out of the blue, Fred Murphy had threatened her, telling her to mind her own business and watch who she said what to, or else she'd end up in the cellar. She only realized after the body was discovered that she'd seen Fred entering the store with a woman in a blue coat a few days before, and that must have been what he was threatening her over. Detective Inspector Bill Salisbury had Frederick George Murphy remanded and charged with the murder of Rosina Field. Months later, 
he was found guilty and sentenced to death. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure Bill Salisbury was proud of his work on the Islington Cellar Mystery. He'd gotten a killer off the street and brought justice to poor Rosie's family, but it was just so easy. Bill Salisbury had been an officer with the Royal Field Artillery during the Great War. After that, he joined Scotland Yard, where he landed with the elite flying squad, known as the Sweeneys, the top cops in London. He'd been one of the detectives principally responsible for breaking up the Razor Gangs, which terrorized the city with gambling protection rackets and open gang warfare in the streets. He and his partner, Ted Greeno, were famous all around the country for their work at the Flying Squad. They'd once spotted a house being burgled and run into it by themselves. They discovered a team of robbers in the bathroom, but the two were unarmed. Greeno had picked up a toilet brush. Salisbury grabbed a plunger. They won. Together, they'd raced a train full of international forgers for 71 miles from Harwick to Liverpool Street Station. They'd both received commendations. Ted Greeno was soon to be known as one of the greatest detectives to ever work Scotland Yard. And Bill Salisbury was on that track, too. But something happened, maybe a respiratory problem, and Bill was moved off of the flying squad. For the next few years, he became one of Scotland Yard's go-to cleanup men, called out to crime scenes around the country when local officers wanted the extra oomph. It was important work, but most of the time, like in the Islington Cellar Mystery, it didn't provide a challenge befitting Bill's true abilities. Until he was called out to the town of Halifax in West Yorkshire on November 29, 1938, to solve one of the most incredible mysteries of all time. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, True Crime. Gertie Watts and Mary Gledhill lived together in Barksland, a small village southwest of Halifax. They were both 21, worked at one of the mills in Halifax, and attended night school in Rippenden another small village to their west. On the night of November 16, 1838, they noticed a man in a cap and overcoat when they were first heading out of Barksland for class. They saw him again outside the Fleece Inn. A few minutes later, while walking a dark path into town, they heard quick footsteps behind them. Before they could turn, they said they were hit by something. Maybe a hammer, maybe a hatchet, they couldn't say. They grappled with the man for a minute before breaking loose and running to a nearby cottage where they collapsed in shock. The owner of the cottage, Harold Hellowell, said their faces were covered in blood. He ran out into the night to try to find their attacker, while Mrs. Hellowell tended to the girls. He wasn't able to spot anyone, and neither Gertie nor Mary were able to give any description of the man they'd noticed, other than that he was probably somewhere in his 30s. Both victims were okay. Once the blood was wiped away, it became evident that their wounds were superficial. But they were understandably spooked. And so was the whole of the community, who weren't used to such senseless and seemingly random violence. Two days later, the Halifax Courier put the anxiety to print. Until the culprit is found and effectively dealt with, there is not likely to be much peace of mind, not only at Barkisland and Rippenden, but further afield. In the local district, at any rate, the affair has created a tremendous sensation, and it has thoroughly upset the people. There was plenty more sensation left to come. Five days later, 
November 21st, another 21-year-old factory worker, Mary Sutcliffe, was walking home from the night shift at McIntosh's Chocolate Factory on the west side of Halifax. She said she was all by herself at a deserted intersection when a man materialized from out of the darkness. He was reasonably tall, nearly six feet, and in his late 20s or early 30s. He wore, to Mary's recollection, a trilby hat and a dark gray suit beneath a military raincoat. It was a much better description than police had been able to get from the Rippenden incident. Impressively precise, given that Mary had only seen her assailant for a brief moment. When he stepped into the light, his arm was raised with something in his hand, and Mary Sutcliffe had thrown up her arms in front of her face on reflex. She'd felt a strike against her arm, but it wasn't until she got inside her house, several blocks away, which she sprinted to through the dark streets, never looking back, that she noticed she was bleeding. Her wrist had been slashed, deep, and clean, like the work of a razor. She went to the hospital, where her wound was stitched up and her statement taken. The attacks themselves were starting to take a razor-like shape, cutting from the smaller villages to the west, into the edges of Halifax, and, three nights after Mary Sutcliffe's frightening encounter, straight into town, to the infamous Halifax gibbet. For centuries, the Lord of the Manor of Wakefield was given carte blanche to arrest, try, sentence, and execute any thieves under his territory, which included Halifax. It's not clear when this unsettling power was first vested in the lordship. In 1761, Samuel Midgley wrote that the power dated from a time not in the memory of man to the contrary. It was known as the Gibbet Law. Halifax wasn't the only territory under Gibbet Law but it came to be known as the harshest and most frequent user, or abuser. Suspected thieves were held in the public stocks for three days, along with the goods they were to have pilfered. Then, they were taken to the gibbet. The gibbet itself resembled a 15-foot-tall guillotine, but with a reappropriated axe head for a blade. It was positioned just shy of 500 yards from the forest of Hardwick, which was the boundary of the Lord's executionary power. If the convicted were able to get loose on the walk between the stocks and the gibbet and run past the boundary, they were free to go. In at least 500 years of gibbeting, only two are said to have made it away from the forest in time. In 1639, poet John Taylor wrote The Beggar's Litany, a sort of short prayer for the poor and unscrupulous of England. From Hull, Hell, and Halifax, good Lord deliver us. The gibbet law was finally ended in the 1650s by Oliver Cromwell, who saw it as a relic of pagan law and Catholic rule. The device was dismantled and the site forgotten until 1840, when it was rediscovered. But the impact of the gibbet loomed large in Halifax. The main road from the west into the town center, where the executions had been held, is called Gibbet Street. On Gibbet Street, in 1938, sat St. Andrew's Methodist Church, and on the night of November 24th, Clayton Aspinall was standing outside of it, waiting for tardy Sunday school goers, when he heard fast, heavy steps approaching. He turned to see a young man running his way. Not thinking anything of it, Clayton took a step back to clear the route, but when the runner reached him, he outstretched an arm towards Mr. Aspinall with something sharp in his hands. Like Mary Sutcliffe, Clayton covered his head defensively with his arm and was slashed below the elbow. The attacker didn't even slow down. He disappeared around a corner at the School of Art, where the young women of Halifax were taking their night classes. 
Clayton Aspinall had knocked his glasses akimbo when he went to guard his head, so he didn't get a good look at his aggressor either. What he thought he saw was a man of about 30 years, a bit shorter than the others had described, say 5'9", wearing a brown overcoat. He thought he might have had a hump or stoop, though that could have just been his running posture. The real juicy detail of Aspinall's attack was that this time the suspect wasn't wearing a hat. Aspinall said he thought it had been a redhead. Now the alarm was fully raised. Whoever was behind these attacks was getting more bold, moving further and further into town on well-lit streets, even now daring to strike out at full-grown men. Worse still, by the way he handled the turns and alleys, it seemed like whoever it was, he was local. Night classes were held behind lock and key, and people, particularly young women, were advised not to travel alone after dark. The day after Aspinall's attack, the fear of the town was given the most important thing any fear can ask for. A name. The front page of the Halifax Courier announced in large print, £10 reward for arrest of the Halifax Slasher. And that is when all hell, Hull, and Halifax broke out. The morning of November 25th, 1938, the police and local paper had named the threat. And that night, the Halifax slasher sent an ambiguous reply. Did the name suit or displease him? All that could be said for sure is that the violence of the previous nine days was nothing compared to what began that evening. At 6.20, 39-year-old Annie Cannon left work with a laugh, joking, I hope the slasher doesn't get me. Minutes later, in a dark alley, a man bounded out of the shadows and struck her on the shoulder. She fell and smacked her head, but was otherwise unharmed. But when she stood up and inspected herself, she found a three-and-a-half-inch slash that cut through her sweater and down to her blouse, stopping just short of her heart. The slasher was already gone. He hadn't even slowed down to cut Annie, continuing on and out into the dark again. An hour later, he attacked Mrs. Alice MacDonald. At 9.50 came Percy Waddington, a local grocery store manager. Percy said he'd been out at the pub with friends and was returning home with fish and chips. He didn't even notice the man passing him. He only felt a sharp cut across his hand in the drunken dark. He turned around and grabbed at the shadowy swirl of fabric and confusion. He didn't get a look at the villain, but he did get something else. He'd managed to hold the man back for just a moment before he snapped free and fled into the night. But that snap had come off in Percy's hand. He'd ripped off a button tab from the sleeve of his assailant's coat. It was the first physical evidence to be recovered. While Percy Waddington was investigating the swatch of felt in his hand, the slasher was on to his next victim. Hilda Lodge knew she shouldn't be out alone, felt very nervous about it, especially as the 35-year-old had to walk down a dark and solitary stairway to get to her destination. But she needed vinegar for her chips, so what choice did she have but to buck up, grab her decanter, hurry along, and sing a little ditty to herself for courage. Hilda didn't see the slasher at all. His arm had reached out from behind a corner just as she passed by, singing her cheery song. She dropped the decanter and made a V-line to the nearest safe house. Mrs. Whitaker was awoken by the frenzied knocking at her door. When she opened it, she found Hilda Lodge covered in blood from her face, hands, and arms. As soon as Mrs. Whitaker got her inside, Hilda collapsed. She mumbled and moaned and stared off into the middle distance. 
Mrs. Whitaker feared she had lost too much blood. But when she cleaned her off, she was relieved to realize that Hilda Lodge's wounds, like the other victims, weren't nearly so serious as they initially appeared. But the commotion outside was a different story. The word of the string of attacks that night was out, and a mob began to assemble at the Halifax Slasher's last known location, outside Mrs. Whitaker's house. After the first attack on Marion Gertrude, Harold Hellowell had gone out into the night himself, unsuccessfully seeking the assailant. The police had combed the area after the assaults on Mary Sutcliffe and Clayton Aspinall, but had come up empty. The people of Halifax weren't willing to let the slashers slip through their fingers again. They fanned out around the area, and after a brief interval, a cry went out. Here he is! A small group had discovered one man out by himself and pounced. That small group quickly accreted into a larger and larger one, an unruly, angry lynch mob out for blood. The bobbies who were taking Hilda's weak and dizzy statement heard men screaming, Someone break his bloody neck! and ran out to see what was up. They were able to disperse the crowd enough to remove the man at the center from harm's way. His name was Clifford Edwards, and he'd come down to help find the slasher too. It might have made for a cautionary tale, but the panicked masses of Halifax were in no mood for one of those. After at least four attacks in one night, they formed vigilante groups to roam the alleys after dark. Women carried pepper pots, fire pokers, and lengths of hose filled with buckshot. More than 120 police officers were put on the case and on the streets. If that wasn't enough, 150 Boy Scouts were added on as, quote, auxiliary anti-slasher forces, mainly to answer telephones. It was a dragnet like nothing the area had ever seen. And yet, the attacks continued. On Saturday evening, less than a day after Annie Cannon and Alice McDonald and Percy Waddington and Hilda Lodge, 21-year-old Leslie Nickel was attacked. Four hours later, the slasher found Margaret Reynolds at Caddy Field. More and more victims, both of the slasher and of the vigilantes. Reports make mention of vague attacks all over the area. Sunday, the 27th, saw at least two more slashings. Beatrice Sorrell was just 19, but her lover, Michael Higgins, was decidedly older and already involved, so they had to meet at night. When they parted ways, Beatrice started home. She was just at the site of the old Halifax gibbet, that great ancient terror of sinners, when an arm reached out from a darkened yard. The hand was covered in a white handkerchief, but at the end of it was something sharp. It swiped at her, and before Beatrice could even think to scream, disappeared. She ran until she found safety under a street lamp. There, she noticed her arm was bleeding. By the time she made it to the fire station, she'd collected a fresh mob behind her, again on the scent of the slasher. This time, the frenzy found Fred Baldwin, a 15-year-old boy who was walking his bike when a posse of five or six men pushed him to the ground and hit him. Meanwhile, the slasher was attacking again. Seven miles from the gibbet in Mytheroyd, Lily Woodhead was having a fight with her boyfriend. She asked him to at least, please, walk her to the bus. She didn't want to go alone, because of the slasher. I should not be surprised if there was a slasher in the road tonight, he snarled angrily, and let her off on her own. He was right. On her way to the bus, Lily Woodhead said she was pushed to the ground by a shadowy figure and cut several times about her arms before he ran off. Monday morning, the 28th, the police put out a statement. They asked for more help from the public, 
and advised women not to be out walking alone. But mostly, they sought to calm the citizenry. This is more matter of uh, exciting and alarm in the public. The victims are not badly hurt. There is no doubt that the person or persons concerned are getting tremendous satisfaction from the publicity that has been obtained. It is not thought that it is a mental case. It's a sheer devilment. There's probably more than one person concerned, probably about three. But the calm wouldn't come. At the same time the police were giving their statement, the slasher made his first daylight attack. In the early morning rain, Constance Wood was standing just outside her own front gate when a man in a raincoat barreled by, knocking her over. She felt a pain in her left arm and immediately realized what had happened. She screamed for help, and soon a veritable squad of do-gooders arrived. They attempted to chase down the slasher, but only managed to apprehend several innocent raincoat wearers. Reports were now spilling out of Halifax, all the way to Manchester, Leeds, even London. Most of these, though, were misfires. A man arrived at work later that morning, only to notice a couple of small cuts in his raincoat. He couldn't recall anyone getting near to him, let alone attacking, but he called the police anyway, just to be sure. Patrols chased down lurkers and shadows and any lone man that struck them as suspicious. And, given that the vigilantes were fast acquiring a well-earned reputation for punching first and asking questions later, most suspects, though innocent, ran. Amidst all the dross and clamor of Monday, one very noteworthy attack bubbled curiously to the surface. A 21-year-old woman was leaving home to go to her night shift at the chocolate factory. Almost as soon as she closed the door, her mother heard a loud scream. She ran out into the yard and discovered her daughter lying there with a cut across her chest. Mary Sutcliffe had just been slashed for a second time. The Halifax police were overwhelmed. Even with all the belligerent vigilantes and all the Boy Scouts in all of West Yorkshire, they couldn't stem the chaos. So finally, under the pressure, they called for help from Scotland Yard. There were still more slashings on Tuesday the 29th. One reported in Manchester, another in Bradford. Back in Halifax, 40-year-old Margaret Kenny stepped out from her home to check the time. There was a clock that could be seen through a mill window just at the bottom of the steps on Crib Lane. Just as she saw the hands mark 720, Margaret said a man came up behind her, grabbed her by the left arm, and started hacking at the right. She grappled with him for a minute. She remained quiet, hoping that someone might come along and discover her. But she began to worry she'd be seriously injured if she didn't get free. So she screamed, and he ran. A little later, Winifred McCall was accosted near Union Square Church. Even with more than a dozen attacks, there was still barely a scrap of evidence to be found. And with every witness came a new and different description. It was too perplexing for the local cops to handle. But lucky for them, Detective Chief Inspector Bill Salisbury was now on the scene. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The Constant is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Most of us are sticking close to home for the time being. And if you're not, you should be. Please stay home. Please, please, please stay home. So if you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, now is a good time. There's only so much Disney Plus I can absorb before I need something that might actually marginally improve myself as a person. And with thousands of lectures from the world's best professors and experts, The Great Courses Plus is a fantastic way to stay informed, engaged, and better understand our current situation with reliable, fact-based courses like An Introduction to Infectious Diseases, To Learn About Viruses, Vaccines, and Disease Transmission, Money and Banking, What Everyone Should Know to Help Contextualize the Current Stock Market, and Fighting Misinformation, Digital Media Literacy to Help Interpret Fact from Fiction in the News. You can keep the kids learning about math, science, and history while they're out of school. Or use this time to pick up a new hobby like gardening, cooking, yoga, even how to speak a new language. With the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen anytime, anywhere from your phone, tablet, or internet-connected TV. And the Great Courses Plus has a great offer to get you started. Right now, they're giving my listeners a special limited-time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. But to get it, you need to sign up now through my special URL thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. Start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant, one word. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. And by BetterHelp. Everybody could use somebody to talk to, but traditional therapy can be expensive and inconvenient, and finding the right person is daunting. But with BetterHelp, you can connect with a professional counselor on your own schedule in a safe and private environment through secure video, phone, chat, or text sessions with your own therapist. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in relationships, depression, trauma, anxiety, LGBT matters, sleeplessness, and more. Their secure, convenient professional counseling is available worldwide as soon as 24 hours after signing up. And if you're not satisfied with your counselor, you can always request a new one. 
Best of all, it's affordable, with financial aid available for those who qualify. And BetterHelp is giving constant listeners 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash the constant, fill out a questionnaire to help assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Impeccably dressed, unflappably calm, and trailing a young sergeant named Harry Stuttered, Bill Salisbury, who had broken up the Razor Gangs, solved the Islington Cellar mystery, and beaten two burglars with a plunger, strode into Halifax, ready to put the cuffs on the slasher. The leads presented by local law enforcement weren't especially promising. Their first suspect had been a laborer named James Francis Leonard. Twelve years before the slasher pandemonium, Leonard had gone on a bit of a crime spree of his own. He went around harassing young women, mainly at movie theaters, in a very peculiar way. On January 28, 1927, he'd poked his head between the seats where Louise Hartley and Mary Whalen were sitting and grinned diabolically at them. They heard a ripping, tearing sound and realized that the man was cutting holes in their dresses. Two weeks later, they were able to pick him out of a lineup, as were several others. When the police apprehended James Francis Leonard, they found on his person several razor blades. He went to prison for six months. Since his release, it was assumed Leonard had continued to stay in Halifax, though he had no fixed address. But detectives had been quick to rule him out. The reason Louise and Mary and the others had been so easily able to finger James Francis Leonard as their assailant, even though they'd mostly only seen him in darkened theaters, was because James Francis Leonard was the owner of a conspicuous, gigantic, honking schnoz. His nose was so big and unsightly that it flagged any criminal enterprise to which he accustomed himself. While the descriptions of the Halifax Slasher were often vague, and frequently contradictory, not a one of them made mention of his bulbous beak. Two weeks before the first attack on Mary Gledhill and Gertrude Watts, an eight-year-old girl named Phyllis Hurst was seen walking away with a strange man in Little Horton Green, Bradford. An hour later, her still warm body was discovered by a woman walking her dog. The case was one of those awful, enrapturing tragedies that today grips cable news and supermarket tabloids, but back in 1938, people wrote songs about them. The murderer was never found, despite a manhunt that included phone lines, detectives, wanted posters, several false confessions, and at least two psychics. But in the course of things, police did discover several other articles of clothing and shoes that they feared indicated a serial predator was on the loose along with reports of a similar-looking man attempting to make company with several other little girls in the preceding weeks. With Phyllis Hurst and the Halifax Slasher, one attention-grabbing panic had led directly to the next. So, it was natural that both civilians and coppers thought that there must be some connection. But Bill Salisbury didn't give this theory the time of day. How does a child murderer graduate into a run-by razor flinger? And anyway, the man seen with Phyllis and the other girls was markedly shorter than any of the descriptions given of the slasher. There were some other wild and harebrained hypotheses. The Nazis and the fascists were on the tip of the British imagination, and both groups had their supporters on the island. 
Why they'd be interested in slashing sweaters in Halifax, though, was unaccounted for. No, this was all useless. If he was going to get anywhere, Bill Salisbury would have to re-interview the victims and witnesses. And he knew where he wanted to start, with Percy Waddington, the man who'd removed the slasher's coat tab. The day after Waddington's first statement, he'd returned to the station, saying he'd gone back to the scene of the crime and found a razor there. That same day, a patrolman had found a disused raincoat on the rugby ground across from Percy's shop. It was missing a cuff tab. When Detective Salisbury and Sergeant Studdard showed it to an errand boy at the grocer's, he recognized the coat as belonging to the manager, Percy Waddington. Under interrogation by Bill Salisbury, Percy confessed. Not fully, though. Not to all the attacks. Actually, only to one. The one on himself. Said Percy, I don't know what came over me, but took out a safety razor blade from my pocket and cut my left hand across the back. I'm very sorry I've caused police all this trouble. I realize I've been a fool, but get very excited and sometimes don't know what I'm doing. It had been on my mind about all those other attacks in the district. I'm not responsible for those slashing attacks. Well, that seemed far-fetched. Are we to believe that this guy just made up an attack on himself for no reason and that he had nothing to do with the dozen or so others? No cop in the world would buy that kind of inexplicable, incoherent coincidence. Aside from Bill Salisbury. He next brought in Beatrice Sorrell, who'd been cut on the arm just near the gibbet after a meeting with her lover. Bill noticed something odd about her injuries. Beatrice had been wearing a cardigan and a Macintosh coat the night of the attack. She had a cut on her arm, which more or less matched a slash through her clothes. But she also had another, second cut on her arm, where her sleeves were totally fine. How, Bill asked her, could that have happened? Sure enough, Beatrice Sorrell also confessed. I held hold of the blade in my right hand and slashed down my left arm, making a long cut in my Macintosh coat and cardigan. Then I put the blade back into the cut and scratched down my arm twice. I put my fingers through the cut in the cloth and saw that they were covered in blood. She'd had a fight with her lover that night and afterwards spent half the bus fare on a Mike Lee razor blade. The reason why I cut my arm was because I was in a temper and I'd been reading in the papers about girls being slashed. Lily Woodhead, whose boyfriend had cruelly suggested he didn't care if she got slashed, also confessed to doing the cutting herself. Hilda Lodge admitted that she'd smashed the vinegar decanter on purpose and scratched at her face and arms with the shards of broken glass. I don't know what made me do it. Will it get into papers if I tell you what happened? It has made my nerves worse since I done it. I've always suffered with my nerves. And last week, I read a lot in the papers about people being slashed with razors. This seemed to get on top of me and... I thought I would cut myself. I told newspaper men a lot of lies. I am sorry for all the trouble I've caused, but it is all through my nerves, from which I have suffered for some years. Nerves were also responsible for Mrs. Constance Wood, who'd been standing outside her gate when the slasher got her. In truth, she'd been knocked over by someone in a rush and scratched herself in the fall. But she was so paranoid about the slasher that she assumed the injuries were from him. 
a Manchester woman named Marjorie Murphy admitted that she'd cut herself on accident when she was going to do the laundry and decided spontaneously, in the moment, to blame the slasher that was so preoccupying her mind and everyone else's. A boy in Huddersfield said pretty much the same thing. In the final accounting, all but three of the victims confessed to having imagined or invented the attacks themselves. One of the holdouts was Mary Sutcliffe, who had improbably and suspiciously claimed two attacks. As the assaults had piled on, day upon day, the mystery had only deepened. By the time Scotland Yard showed up, most of the 112 police officers on the case had concluded there must be a team of assailants, some sort of nefarious gang at least three strong, maybe six, maybe 12. But Bill Salisbury got that number down to zero. There had never been a Halifax slasher at all. But there were victims. Clifford George Edwards, who barely escaped being killed by the mob. 15-year-old Fred Baldwin, too, and several more besides. The worst was Michael McKeven, a middle-aged man from Manchester who was accused by his co-workers of being the slasher on account of his sensitive and neurotic demeanor. McKeven was so upset by the accusations that he swallowed a bottle of aspirin and died. So, there had to be justice. Seven were charged with public mischief. Winnie McCall, Leslie Nickel, Hilda Lodge, and Beatrice Sorrell were each given four months in jail. Lily Woodhead and Percy Waddington received probation. Two years for Lily, three for Percy. Annie Cannon, for reasons lost to the record, was found not guilty. William Spencer was fined 10 pounds for his part in the beating of Fred Baldwin. And that was that. The case was closed. On December 2nd, the Halifax Courier used its front page to announce, Carry on, Halifax. The slasher scare is over. The theory that a half-crazed, wild-eyed man has been wandering around, attacking helpless women in dark streets, is exploded. There never was, nor is there likely to be, any real danger to the general public. There is no doubt that following certain happenings, public feeling has grown, and that many small incidents have been magnified in the public mind until a real state of alarm was caused. This assurance that there is no real cause for alarm, in short, no properly authenticated wholesale attacks by such a person as the bogeyman known as the Slasher should allay the public fear. Then again, in the satisfying ending sense, this all totally failed to answer the question. Because what was the why? Why did more than a dozen people, separately and apart from one another, spontaneously decide to fake attacks? For that, there is pretty much no answer. There are a number of terms we can apply to the Halifax slasher mystery. Mass hysteria, moral panic, conversion disorder, mass psychogenic illness. In pedestrian usage, all of those are essentially interchangeable, but none of them do a great job of putting a pin in this. Because for the most part, sociologists and psychologists expect these sorts of things to follow some larger cultural anxiety. But what touched off this event? There were certainly concerns about Germany, who had already annexed Austria, and Kristallnacht was just a week before Mary Gledhill and Gertrude Watts started the whole thing off. 
And as I've said, there was already a public fear going around over the abduction and murder of Phyllis Hurst, which spilled over pretty perfectly into the slasher. I don't find either of those concerns, or even both of them in tandem, very explanatory. And anyway, widespread anxiety might explain why people believe in non-existent events, such as the Seattle windshield pitting epidemic we covered last year. But how does that explain why people would invent non-existent events? To me, the Halifax slasher story defies any sort of logical framing. It seems something more like total stochastic randomness, or the results of some obscure nonlinear chaos, like a rogue wave rippling through Calderdale. I hope this story doesn't feel like a prank, like a joke, because I think it's something much more terrifying. It's like Bill Salisbury apprehended the villain and, upon pulling off his mask, discovered he had no face. But Bill Salisbury was unfazed. He moved right on to the next case, an IRA bombing of a gunpowder factory. Once the war broke out, Salisbury got on another beat. There was a rumor that there were men out there with bad hearts who draft dodgers could hire to impersonate them at army physicals, and others who taught classes on how to fake epilepsy. Some people on the streets even said it was a big, organized crime scene spread out all across England. The cops, though, knew that was nonsense. Except for Bill Salisbury, who believed it, proved it, and busted it up. There are a number of lists of greatest Scotland Yard detectives out there, but none of the ones I've found include Bill Salisbury. So, if somehow somebody who puts together those kinds of rankings is listening, I would like to submit DCI William Salisbury for consideration. The man who broke up the draft dodging ring and the razor gangs, who subdued burglars with a plunger, the man who took less than a day to solve a commonplace, slow-pitch murder like the Islington Cellar Mystery, and who solved the most vexing, counterintuitive case, perhaps in history, the Halifax Slasher Mystery, in less than 48 hours. Music for today's episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere and Kevin McLeod. Voice talent by Ben McKay, Lawrence Grimm, Andrew Rathgipper, Heather Chrysler, Jody Kingsley. We are a proud part of Hub and Spoke, who have just welcomed our 10th podcast into the fold. The Briny explores both how we're changing the sea and how the sea changes us. So, as you might expect, I love it. The first episode I listened to back when H&S were considering adding the briny on is called The One Who Came Back. I won't spoil it for you, but to say that I was convinced by like three minutes in. Go check it out now. Special thanks go out to everyone who supports the show on Patreon, especially Hugh Stimson, Catherine Schrader, Adam, and, and this is what it says, Neil J. Just Neil J. Oliver, Oliver. Last episode, I put out a special call, and many of you answered. For that, I am truly grateful. If you want to help this show get made, you can go to patreon.com slash theconstantnow and sign up. But I also know that this is just about the toughest time most of us have ever faced, and it's only going to get harder for a while. If you don't have the comfort and privilege to be able to spend on this show, please do not. Instead, if you still want to help, then spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a favorite episode, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. 
And most of all, stay safe. Take care of yourselves and each other. Up until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Jack the Cutter, a probably fictional phantom attacker who was said to slash the buttocks of women in the summer of 1906, this has been The Constant. 